This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by special guest hosts, Jack and Byron. Fellas, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Awesome. Um, so pour one out this week for Mark. Uh, Mark is down in Miami for Bitcoin 2022. Uh, I'm sure he is partying and having lots of fun, no doubt. But uh, Mark, we miss you. And I'll see you back here uh, next week. Uh, before we get into content, I do want to do a big plug for Permissionless uh, and actually our Permies NFTs. Uh, so we've actually got the live reveal of our NFTs. And that's going to be in about 45 minutes from now. So I'm sure we're going to be deep into conversation by then. Be, well, we might have to take a quick break because I want to see which Permi uh, I ended up with. Um, if, for those of you who don't know, Permissionless is our uh, is our big conference this year. It's going to be down in Palm Beach from May 17th through the 19th. It's the cultural event of the year, getting really deep into all things NFT, DeFi, uh, et cetera. We've got some really great speakers, uh, Do Kwan, uh, Kevin Iwaki, the founder of Gitcoin, um, Chris Dixon. Really, really great lineup. I'll link it at the bottom of the page, but um, excited for this one. And uh, Jack and Byron, I'll see you two in person down there. So should be. Yeah, I want to be there. And Mike, I just want to say I apologize in advance uh, for how many times I've been like, hey, Mike, my friend really wants to go. (laughs) (laughs) This person who's even on my podcast, he really wants to go. Come on. He's a Blockworks (laughs) VIP. So it's, uh, you know, a lot of some people bought their tickets in October uh, and they were able to get an early seat. But but now it's really uh, they're selling like hotcakes. And uh, yeah, I mean, everyone wants to be there. Yeah. That was uh, the most up only thing you could have bought back in October. Our tickets went live at like $15. They've been uh, up only ever since. Uh, So if you got in early, you could uh, flip those bad boys. We've got a lot of different topics that we want to cover on the show today. We're going to start more macro, and then we're going to zoom in and talk about some pretty interesting stuff that's going on in the crypto ecosystem. Um, I want to start just by talking about what's going on in the bond market in general. Uh, So a mutual friend uh, and kind of friend of BlockWorks in the show, uh, Jim Bianco, I thought had a really great thread uh, just talking about... uh, expectations around the Fed's rate hike cycle, uh, what's being priced in and kind of what that means for bonds and then financial assets more generally. Uh, So to just basically summarize what Jim is saying, you know, right now to talk about what's being priced in in terms of uh, expectations, there's an 81% chance of a 50 basis point hike on May 4th, an 87% chance of a second 50 basis point hike on June 15th, and a 65% chance of a third basis point hike on July 27th. This is a far cry. Like I know now, you know, people are getting more used to the idea that the Fed is going to aggressively hike. But I mean, if we return to what was being said, you know, three to six months ago, this would have seemed completely beyond the pale. Right. Um, And I think the bond market is finally starting to wake up. Right. So I know, Jack, you and I have been talking about, uh, you know, in terms of year to date, you know, this is the worst start, uh, especially on the long end of the curve uh, for bonds since this started to get recorded back in um, 1990, right? So really, really tough start of the year, especially on the long date of the curve for, for bondholders. Um, and, you know, the last time we that, that a thing that I'll say before I want to get your two uh, opinions here is that, you know, if you zoom out and look at how the Fed is probably reacting and thinking about this, let's remember that the Fed has a dual mandate, right? So Bill Dudley, you know, the ex-Fed um, governor recently wrote about how he, he actually used pretty strong language that the Fed needs to uh, take action again, the stock market should go down, right? So they've got price stability, uh, which is inflation, which is going out of control, and then they've got employment. Um, and Jim kind of wound up his thread by saying that we actually have something like 12 million open jobs in the United States and only 6 million people unemployed, right? So they've got latitude both in terms of asset prices in the stock market, they've got latitude in terms of unemployment. It looks like they're starting to hike aggressively, and the bond market is finally starting to take that into account. Um, that was a big opening monologue. Guys, I don't know if you have any thoughts about Jim's thread or just the state of bonds in general? 
Oh, I'll, I'll start, Mike. I think the animating principle is that bonds are fixed income. So they, you know, there's only so much money you can make, and bonds pay 1%, they pay 3%, they pay 7%, and you, know, you own them in fiat, and they pay you in fiat. And uh, if there's inflation that is significantly higher, that, you know, inflation's at 8%, and the bond is getting you 2%, there's a mismatch there, and you, know, you would expect the sort of real rate of return to be somewhere around zero. But in December, inflation was at 6%, and the Fed funds rate was at 0%. That was quite a discrepancy, and that discrepancy is narrow. It actually it hasn't narrowed if you look at the spot rate, because uh, next week's inflation is likely going to be about 8.3%. That's the median expectation. And the current Fed funds rate is at 0.25. I think that's really key to underscore that so much of the tightening of the market is all just talk. It's all just people making bets on what the rate is going to be in the future. The current rate now is 0.25, and next next week's inflation is uh, going to be 8.3%. So I think the the long end is just is pricing in uh, all of that inflation that before well, they were saying, oh, you know, it's it's not going to be. I think the 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 bond market is sort of waking up to a secular inflation theme. Uh, I have definitely not been constructive on bonds uh, for you know I don't know. At least over a year, um, I think that it might be bonds might be you know they're they're definitely a better investment now than they were <laughs> three months ago. Uh, yeah, I mean I think the the bond market is doing what the Fed wants it to do, um, so that's that's good. <clears throat> the question to me is uh, why the stock market is not doing what the Fed wants it to do. Um, I mean the you know. Uh, Financial conditions are definitely tighter than they were a couple of months ago, and that has so far just all been Fed jawboning. Um, but the the stock market is is doing its own thing more or less. It's, you know, Nasdaq has sold off a little bit, but you know the S and P is still close enough to the all time highs that you you have to wonder whether the the market is. Uh, losing its its uh, um, signaling value, or if it's it's uh, telling us something that the consensus narrative is is not aware of. Maybe another perspective. Uh, you know, I listened to Brad Gerstner uh, on the Arnold Lynn podcast last week, and his kind of perspective on this. You know, the indices haven't really moved that much. The Nasdaq has sold off a little bit. The S and P is still within spitting distance of its all time high. But what has gotten absolutely shellacked is those kind of. You know, we've talked about this. The pandemic. Uh, darling, you know, type stocks like the Pelotons of the world and the Zooms of the world, those are well off their all-time highs. So, you know, one way of looking at what the market is doing is saying, you know, people are moving out. If they're, if the risk spectrum is those very, very growthy tech stocks, they're kind of moving into more defensive stocks, like maybe FANGs have become defensive type stocks. Um, and obviously, if you look at the composition of the indices, the NASDAQ and the S&P, the FANGs, the big tech, like mega cap tech, makes up a huge proportion of that. Um, but... On the other hand, uh, you know, we had uh, Mike McGlone on the show the other week, and he was talking about just mean reversion, right, and gravity returning to markets. And I kind of agree with you, Byron. It looks like the bond market is starting to sniff something out, uh, but the stock market, for whatever reason, hasn't reacted. So maybe it's just a matter of time. I don't know. Well, I think there's an argument to be made, to, to be made that equities are a you know something to own in in an inflationary environment. Um, you know, so far. Uh, U.S. companies have been able to rise, you know, raise prices faster than their costs are raising. You know, the uh, of the profit margins on for the S and P 500 are in, at an all time high. Um, so so far, equities have been have been a good inflationary asset to own, um, and I think a lot of that is because, like you say, because mega cap tech is 
actually a defensive sector. Uh, but that's probably not going to last forever. You know, people, you know, employees start asking for raises and you're uh, fixed costs have to get um, have to get replaced at at, at some point. Um, so you know the the, the question is whether uh, the, the the profit margins are sustainable. Mike, you're absolutely right that the stocks that got shellacked the most were the speculative, non-profitable technology names that basically are essentially a bond because all of their money that they're going to make is in 20 years or something. Right. You know, ARC would be a, a highlight of that. I actually uh, was listening to a presentation from Liz Ann Saunders from uh, Schwab. I have a lot of respect for her. And she pointed out that the rebound we've seen over the past, let's say, three weeks has actually been led by those names. So there's been a pretty vigorous rebound in those speculative tech. Meanwhile, the core economy names, transportation, banking, uh, real estate, shipping, things that move things from point A to point B are industrial stocks that uh, you typically associate with the cyclical real economy. They actually haven't participated as much in this rally. And that could forebode uh, something negative for the economy. Uh, but I do just want to go back to this picture of bonds, because I, I think uh, right now, yes, it's absurd. Uh, inflation is going to be 8.3%. Uh, it might even get higher uh, based on commodity prices, and the current Fed fund rate is 0.25. But if you if the Fed is going to hike to something like 3% by the end of 2023, and by the way, I actually think that they that is plausible. Some people think that's not at all possible. I, I think it is. That's 3%. Inflation is going to moderate down to I don't know four or five percent. You know, I am an inflationista, but I'm not I'm not a you know foaming at the mouth inflationista. And by the way, quantitative tightening that is tightening uh, monetary tightening conditions uh, of itself. And I actually was just speaking to uh, someone who worked at, used to work at the Treasury, and they've they've looked a lot into this, and they said that uh, let me actually get my numbers. Uh, about $120 billion per month is the equivalent of uh, the 200 basis point hike for a year. So about the $500 billion quantitative tightening that we're going to do uh, until the end of the year, uh, based on what the Fed indicated in its Fed minutes, that would be about a, a two to three additional rate hikes. Uh, and if, I mean, if the Federal Reserve were to drain its balance sheet entirely uh, to a pre-pandemic level of $3 trillion, that would be 400 basis points higher. So I can see, I can envision a world in middle of the year 2024, when inflation is 2.5%, 3.5%, Fed funds is still at 3%, but if you add on the QT layer at 7%, uh, in terms of monetary conditions, uh, fixed income uh, is back to, you know, back to in the black instead of in, in the red. So I am uh, thinking that bonds, they have obviously been a fantastic short, but uh, I'm I'm, I've gone from bearish to bonds to, to neutral on bonds. And I don't know, maybe if TLT is at 120, maybe I'll turn bullish. I don't know. I don't know. I guess it just depends on on how effectively inflation is able to rein in. Um, and like, you know, Zoltan in that, in that I think, uh, letter that basically everyone has read at this point, he talks about this kind of Bretton Woods 3 framework and shifting from kind of a, a a non-collateralized uh, central banking system to one that's more collateralized by the idea of commodities and stuff like that. And, and if you combine everything that's going on in geopolitics, a shift from the unipolar world based on efficiency to a multipolar world, maybe based on resiliency. And that's, that's a very inflationary type trend. So um, I don't know. I feel like I waver on this quite a bit. But I, I mean, I think there's a pretty decent chance that the inflation rate, I, I agreed, maybe maybe it's not 10%, but maybe it's higher than your 2.5 or 3%. Maybe it's something like 5 to 6% uh, feeling more persistent. But yeah, Mike. It's funny when when uh, we first met each other. I think 
I was the inflationista. You were the deflationista. Yeah. We flipped. I'm definitely not a deflationista, but I, here's Mike. If if we have secular inflation, it will be because of commodity pressures. I think that the fundamental demand style inflation that we've seen is running out of wind as we speak. And one aspect that that in, it's key to sort of the note, the the short term interest rate note heard around the world by by Zoltan Posar, is this reflexive dynamic where the price of wheat skyrockets. Uh, Egypt imports 80% of its wheat. How does it pay for that wheat? Well, it's going to raise shipping prices uh, uh, if you want to go through the the Suez Canal. And then uh, someone who has to pay that shipping cost, they they raise prices. So it's this uh, inflationary spiral. And Zoltan also talks about, I know Byron has some thoughts on this, but Zoltan also talks about how uh, shipping companies and commodity trading companies in particular uh, rely almost exclusively on bank financing, which, which is credit lines. And because banks have all of these reserves, uh, they're essentially you know, creating money from nothing. They don't have to tap the credit market. So you haven't seen credit stress yet, but that belies a, a fundamental uh, panic that's going on in the banking system right now. Uh, Zoltan is flashing a warning signal and saying that actually quantitative tightening uh, will be a disaster because uh, the, the, the aggregate level of reserves that the banking system needs is actually going to be a lot, lot higher because uh, these commodity trading firms need all this credit line. So there, there will be a demand for credit uh, like we maybe haven't seen in, I don't know, 15 years. Byron, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I don't know if there was, there was a lot in there. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of where it's in, a, it's an unprecedented situation. Like, uh, you know, how important is the level of bank reserves? I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't, we have no historical precedent to really, to really go on. Um, so, you know, I think the, the real risk is that is unintended consequences, you know, uh, like the fed is at, the Fed is attacking inflation by uh, lowering asset prices because that's like the only thing that they can do, right? Um, but do asset prices really matter to inflation? Like, uh, is there is there a real causal relationship between asset prices and, and inflation? I I kind of doubt that. Um, so I feel like they're just going to, you know, they're just going to do QT until something breaks, which is which is worrying. Um, and it's also I I like I, I don't know, I'm just uncomfortable with the whole thing like it just it just seems funny the the idea of deliberately uh, causing unemployment and uh, and a recession in order to lower oil and gas prices just seems kind of perverse like I guess I mean I guess there's nothing else they to do but it just it just seems kind of weird to me. Yeah, thanks for that, Byron. I actually neglected to mention the core thesis of Bretton Woods 3, which is that there are four factors of money. There's par, there's interest, there is foreign exchange, and then there's the price level, which is inflation. And that fourth level, the price level, is something that the Federal Reserve does not really have a lot of control in. It, they are very effective at plugging holes in the financial system uh, for the first three, but you know the Federal Reserve can't print ships, they can't print wheat, they can't print uh, oil. And so the only way that they can is to curb demand on that stuff by, by causing a recession. Yeah, yeah. And, but they yeah they're they're you know lowering demand for everything else um, because they can't directly affect commodities. Is that really a good idea? Like it seems like it's going to uh, induce induce a lot of pain for. Um, I'm I'm not sure what benefit. 
it's a blunt tool, I would say. And the other thing too uh, about commodities, I mean, the the other thing too is just labor markets in general. Like, I think the big, the bit, you know, people focus on commodities a lot, and I think that's a big part of it. But also, the U.S. has basically had access to low cost uh, labor pools in less developed parts of the world, and in a in a shift to a more regionalized, right, or a different kind of poles, right, of the world, that, that might not happen anymore. Um, and I think, I think that's another big part of it as well. That, that's, that was the big thing for me, looking at the geopolitical conflict and being like, this will cause buildups in supply chains, but if the U.S. can't just plug into and leverage, you know, this extremely large, very low-cost manufacturing base that we've basically been leveraging in China, then suddenly there's a lot more wage, wage pressure in the U.S. Um, but I, I kind of want to, I, I want to get to, what I want to get your guys' take on here is just how to play this, right, in general. Like we were talking with uh, Alfonso, who's been a more frequent contributor at BlockWorks, basically about the the risk-reward of, of investing in risk assets, right? Because what we're talking about here, and for listeners, why we're focusing so much on how persistent inflation is going to be, uh, is because if you have very high inflation and a Fed funds rate, e- even with all of these rate hikes, rate hikes being priced in at around 25 or 3%, what one world, like the Luke Groman kind of uh, eventuality, is an environment of sustained negative real rates. And that would be very bad for bonds, very good for risk assets. So in the short term, it seems like there's a lot of pressure for, it seems like it's, it's a good environment for risk assets and risky tech stocks to sell off. But in the long term, the environment that we're describing actually might be quite good for those types of assets. Um, so that's my, that's my question to you guys. Like, how do you, how do you think about uh, kind of risky assets, especially crypto, I guess, and all this as well? I think uh, it's bad for bonds if they're negative real rates, but negative real rates on the long end sort of implies that there's uh, the long end doesn't sell off that hard. So I think people on the long end will not experience huge mark-to-market losses. Like TLT may not go to 40. You know, it's currently at 125. Its peak was 170. But over time, just that 6%, 7% inflation will just eat it away like a like a little worm, like nibbling on an apple. You know, but it's not going to be you know, uh, uh, it's not going to be a huge, huge material loss. And I, I think negative real rates are, are very good for risk assets. Yeah, I think uh, people complain about negative real rates and uh, financial suppression um, and stuff. But I don't, I don't, I don't even view treasuries as an investment class. Really, like treasuries are uh, a savings account for people who have a trillion dollars that they have to put somewhere or something, right? Um, like. Treasuries are just not investable, and I don't think they they ever will be. It's just like having you know, it's just like having a savings account at a bank. You don't expect to make a real return on off the the savings account that you have at your bank, right? And uh, uh, treasuries are just a savings account for institutional investors and and foreign governments and stuff like that. Long term, I mean, there's yeah, the you know, the investing options for an inflationary environment are not great. Uh, I mean, re- real estate is the obvious one. Um, but you know that's difficult to go in and out of. But uh, it's it's probably sensible to have to have mm-hmm. some some degree of your portfolio in in real estate. Um, and then longer term, I do think equities are a decent hedge against inflation um, because you know just the earnings should go up, uh, um, um, or at least revenue should go up with the with nominal GDP growth. And over the long term, companies generally can can control their costs. Uh, so it's just another, you know, it's just another Tina thing. There's not there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of alternatives. Byron, if I can push back on that, uh, I think Treasuries are a savings account for institutional investors. 
savings accounts typically don't experience mark-to-market losses. Like, you know, TLT went from 170 to 125. If you had parked your money just in a bank, you uh, would have lost money due to inflation, but, you know, you still would have had the money. So by taking on duration risk, uh, you can be exposed to to -to mark-to-market yeah, so right? I mean, they're even worse than than a savings account. Um, <laughs> I was just making the point that like you you shouldn't expect to get paid a real return for buying treasuries, um, which people seem to think they should do. Uh, but you know, treasuries are risk free. There's no reason to think you should be making a real return on a risk free asset. Speaking about uh, potential issues that could exacerbate inflation, um, I think this is something that's going relatively underreported on, but uh, there are COVID flare-ups that are happening right now in China again, specifically Shanghai, right? So Shanghai, kind of one of the most populous areas of China, you know, some uh, 26 million residents uh, at the current time are locked down. They're reporting, you know, a flare-ups of, you know, 20,000 plus cases per day. Um, yeah, this is big because, again, a lot of the manufacturing uh, and exports comes out of China, right? Um so China right now is pursuing something that they're calling a zero COVID policy, right? This is coming kind of in the wake or in impend. This is when Xi is up for an unprecedented third election uh, over there. So I am not an expert on this kind of stuff. I don't want to opine on Chinese politics, but I mean, that could certainly be uh, playing into things. But some pretty bizarre stuff happening uh, over there. Um, you know, there's this video that's reported on uh, you know, CNN and other major news sites of actually you know, someone's dog being beaten to death in the streets, uh, you know, because the, the owner had COVID, like some really, really bizarre stuff. Obviously, you know, China a little bit more strict about uh, protests than areas like the United States, but, you know, rare kind of pushback on social media and protests out in the street by really unhappy residents. Um, you know, I'm not sure if either of you guys have any takes on this or if you've looked into it or heard about it, but uh, I, you know, it certainly is potentially uh, interesting um, and definitely something to keep an eye on, uh, I think, for listeners of the show. Yeah, it's it's not good. I mean, on the on the one hand, it's it's inflationary uh, because it just means that the the supply issues are not behind us, which is disappointing. Um, you know, two years after COVID, we we still uh, still haven't sorted out the supply chain issues. Um, but then, longer term, it's deflationary because of the you know the Chinese economy is just is just not going to be very good. Um, so yeah, I don't. It's it's. I don't know. I don't know how you play that from an, an investment angle. Um, my personal takeaway is just that uh, is that I think it's just more evidence that China is not playing fourteen-dimensional chess, you know, um, and that centralized decision making is not better than decentralized decision making. Um, you know, even though you know, obviously, the U.S. government is not a finely tuned machine and does a lot of things that that you know are suboptimal. Um, I, I still think it's a better uh, governance model than, than centralized uh, governments as they have in China. Yeah, I think that the virus, uh, it's, it's, you know, inherently it goes in waves. And anytime there's a spike, that uh, induces people either to self-isolate or, in the case of China, to impose a strict regime of isolation. And that themselves will cause uh, the, the cases to go down. So I think a reopening is is you know going to come over the next month or, or two months and even though that will exert inflationary pressures in the u.s deflationary pressures for shipping rates i think it uh, will actually have the reverse effect after after two months so i think it it's kind of a cyclical thing uh and i think you know this is only one 
of a myriad of, of China's uh, issues, such as the ongoing deleveraging in its real estate sector, which is imposing material losses to you know, a very a very large number of, of Chinese citizens. The, the real estate market in China is kind of like the stock market in the right. U.S., and people had bought on you know about paper rights to this building that never got built. Uh, so. Yeah, there, there are a lot of issues there that is going on with you know, China's buying commodities on the cheap from Russia because there's a geopolitical discount. But um, yeah, I, I mean, the zero COVID policy has been in place in China since the early pandemic. I mean, even before what we call the pandemic has you know, started there. I'm, I'm just curious uh, why why now the, the uh, um, it's resulting in, in pushback from the citizens. Isn't it just time? I mean, like it. It should get harder and harder to keep people locked down, right? Depending on uh, and like some of these videos you can see, and I, I want to be clear too. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to know what videos are real and which aren't, and these are just ones that I've seen circulating on Twitter. But um, I mean, some of these again, they've been aired on you know very legitimate news sites uh, here in the West. So you know, there, there but there are these there are these videos of people saying, I don't I don't care about the restrictions anymore. I need to feed people. Like what you know, at, at a certain point, right? Uh, people get desperate enough to go out into the streets, and actually, generally, that tends to occur. Uh, around food prices, right? When people don't have any food. And I, you know, one of the other things that's apparently happening in Shanghai, although there's immediate blackout over there, is uh, food shortages. So maybe that could be linked linked to all this stuff as well. But I think, Byron, what you kind of said, it's just something to keep an eye on because, again, even though maybe we're shifting away from this, uh, this framework, China is still the world's factory, right? So exports coming out of China is still very important, right, to the rest of the world. And it's kind of a leading economic indicator. So again, if they're just shutting things down due to COVID or for whatever reason, that's going to ripple out to the rest of the world in general. And I think it should be short-term inflationary, but we'll see. Um, speaking of, actually, one thing I wanted to get your guys' take on as well. Uh, so Peter Thiel did a, a speech down in, in Bitcoin Miami this week. I don't know if you saw this. Again, just classically, it was... You know, the headline of, of everything, uh, the the only thing that I actually saw in the headlines was that he accused, uh, he called Warren Buffett, uh, what did he say, like uh, some kind of grandpa, Peter? Uh, he called him like an evil, a sociopathic grandpa uh, from Omaha, basically. So it's a very choice words. Uh, yeah, he criticized the gerontocracy. It was a, a, a trifecta of Jamie Dimon, Warren Buffett, and Larry Fink. Uh, and he basically called uh, Bitcoin kind of this revolution, this, this social movement, uh, and it will succeed or fail due to political reasons more so than anything else. But uh, actually, one really interesting uh, fact that he apparently cited uh, was, uh, a, this is a quote, uh, so today all of the gold in the world is worth $12 trillion, while global equities are worth $115 trillion. In 1980, the ratio is one to one with all the gold in the world and global equities having the same value of $2.5 trillion, which really... <laughs> That actually blew my mind as a that's, statistic. That's a, that's a wild stat. That's yeah. a wild one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and uh, so he actually called, I mean, Peter Thiel, I didn't realize he was such a bull on this stuff, but he actually called for the value of Bitcoin, Bitcoin alone, eclipsing uh, eventually the value of the global stock market. Uh, so that would put, he called, he said Bitcoin's got 100x from here and it's going to be a uh, $115 trillion asset. As Bitcoin alone, sans any of the other crypto. Yeah, that is wild. The, the price of, I mean, he chose his dates w well to make it a pretty drastic thing. You know, if, if you, uh, gold had a huge bull market from 1971 to 1980 and then was in a, you know, trickling bear market that just destroyed a lot of people uh, until 2000 and then 2000 to 2009 was bullish uh, and and then there's been a reversal and then now we're, we've been in a bull market in gold since about 2016. 
I think there are a lot of fundamental reasons uh, to be constructive on gold just just in the in the macro world. Um, but again, now that everyone's getting so bullish, is that the time to not be bullish? Uh, but yeah, I also I, I, I'm a huge skeptic of the belief that the monetary tightening is bad for Bitcoin. Like, I, if you think that bank reserves don't stimulate lending, like, how do you think bank reserves go into Bitcoin? You know, it's, it's like it's one degree of separation versus like seven. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a pretty bullish hundred trillion hundred hundred trillion dollars for Bitcoin. I mean, Byron, do you share that view? Are you are you as bullish as that or more bullish? I mean, if the if the market cap of Bitcoin is ever equal to the market cap of global equities, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. Like there's been nuclear war or an asteroid has hit the Earth or aliens have invaded. Uh, that is like I don't I just don't think that is an outcome that we should be hoping for. I've. I just that that would just would not that would just not reflect well on the future. Let me let me pro let me propose a counterpoint to that though. Just just devil's advocate argument for you here for a second. Uh, so a, do you think then that in 1980 when the value of gold was the same values as the stock market, do you think something was horribly broken back then? So that's question number one. And b, I actually really like the way you describe U.S. Treasuries as not necessarily a an investment uh, asset, but more like a savings account for the institutional investor class, right? It's basically just cash, but it's cash that earns a return and appreciates as opposed to cash that working class people have and that actually depreciates over time. So Bitcoin almost flips that on its head, right? And Bitcoin makes cash available for everyone and it's like this kind of global savings account. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm with you and I, I kind of see it's like maybe that's not super productive, but also you could just see it as a big global savings account that's available to everyone as opposed to just the investor class. So that's my push. No. That's my my pushback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe, yeah, maybe, you know, if you frame it that way, Bitcoin versus treasuries, that would be, I'd be more open to that argument. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Bitcoin is, uh, is a currency, which is fantastic. But, um, you know, the stock market is companies that employ people and that make things that people want and that are, you know, are productive over time and make economies more productive and give us Netflix and Marvel films and stuff I'm like that. Yeah, and, you know, that, that to me is more, you know, it's great to pay with those, pay for all of those things with Bitcoin. I'm all for that. Um, but, you know, I am rooting for companies to, to do well, uh, more so than currencies. Mike, also, your question is, in 1980, when gold and equities had the same market cap, do you think something was wrong with that? Well, wrong is like a kind of a judgmental term, but definitely there was a cause of it in that inflation yeah. expectations were sky high you know, over the past decade you know in 1971 um, we went off the, the gold standard system the, the euro dollar system was a jumble and people thought that inflation would be at 10 percent for the next 30 years so you know that's why 30-year bonds were at uh you know something like 15 percent and gold seemed like a, a good store of value but you know from 1980 to uh, 2019 it's been a pretty good you know half century for fiat uh so i think yeah, Bitcoin inherently, I forget if it was Zoltan who was saying this, I think it was on the Odd Lots podcast, uh, that you know, Bitcoin is inherently a short fiat currency. So it's unlikely, and this is Zoltan saying, that countries would adopt a Bitcoin standard in the same way that they might reimpose a gold standard. Although I actually do think that Bitcoin, not, not talking about a standard here, but as a means of payment, I mean, gold is just horrible. I mean, even even back in the day, I mean, it was you'd, you'd have to you get a, a, a note issued from a bank that would be linked to gold. Like you, no one ever went around paying for things in gold coins. You know, 
like yeah, sure, you'd send a, a treasure chest full of gold to to buy like you know half of a country. But in terms of uh, you know going to the store to buy shoes, like no one ever bought that in gold. Yeah. Uh, so, but I think it is possible. And maybe we can segue into this again. I know by far among the three of us, by far the least about uh, 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 Stripe, but uh, just Stripe, Stripe. Sorry, see, I don't even know the I, name of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, f <laughs> just one anecdote about uh, if you want to talk about just payments in general. Um, you know, like the Rothschilds back when they were, you know, funding wars and everything like that. And, uh, you know, depending on your view of history, pulling the strings right between different countries, one of their biggest challenges was actually simply moving payments from one country to another. And there are some like really crazy anecdotes about like all the investments they had to make in infrastructure to actually move their uh, gold and silver from country to country. It's pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, I, it is a good segment into into lightning, um, which is Generally, again, something I, it's been hard for me to develop a lot of conviction on. So there are two big announcements, uh, right? And both of these came out of Bitcoin Miami, um, that there were integrations from Robinhood. Uh, so Robinhood is integrating Lightning and Strike, uh, right? Which is kind of this this payment, this global payment system that is built on the back of light, the Lightning network uh, is integrating with Shopify in general. So I think a couple of different things. So first, to just address the Robinhood, um, you know, the Robinhood integration i think it's smart you know Robinhood has this huge base of of kind of retail traders right uh you know they've got a lot of bad press and their stock price is down quite a bit but they still they've got a great brand name uh, they've got a lot of really rabid uh, users and one of the big criticisms for their crypto platform was that you couldn't actually withdraw your bitcoin from the platform so kind of all the the real crypto people didn't use that didn't use that as an exchange but now you can you can actually withdraw directly to lightning uh which is big and then the Shopify integration is huge. It's like the largest e-commerce, uh, you know, platform in the United States, and enabling you to make payments in Bitcoin, I think, is is pretty big. Um, but overall, you know, I've I've just kind of noticed quietly that the Lightning Network is starting to get some more traction. Uh, there have been a couple like ecosystems fund, like there's this this uh, collaboration between OKCoin and um, Stacks. You know, it's a hundred fifty million dollars sum fund to actually build apps and everything on Lightning. Um, and it's kind of gone unnoticed. But I think, again, you know, the payments use case for Bitcoin is one that has always existed. The narrative has shifted away from that recently. But I think this is pretty bullish. Um, I don't know, Byron, if you have any if any thoughts on Lightning and these recent integrations. Yeah, I think Lightning is is great, and it's it's exciting that it's getting uh, that it's it's got so many um, so many more use cases now. Um, I mean, that's that's what makes Bitcoin a currency. Like you know, things don't have to be denominated in in Bitcoin. The the unit of account is like the least important and least interesting aspect of of money. Um, you know, everything can stay listed in dollars, but if you if you can pay for it with the Bitcoin on your on your Lightning app then you know that makes bitcoin money um and you know especially in an, in an inflationary environment if inflation is really going to be secular um you know the, the the problem of inflation is that you have x amount of dollars on your checking account just as working capital because you've got to buy things in dollars or whatever so the degree that you can switch your working capital into Bitcoin, um, that's, that's, you know, that has a lot of value in an inflationary environment. Yeah. Byron, can you just w walk us back through uh, a argument you made in your newsletter a few months ago, and by the way, everyone uh, subscribe to Byron's newsletter. It's a great read just about how the, the dollar was, there are three, three, three services that money provides. The dollar is two of them. 
uh, at Bitcoin, there's also two of them, but they're different in terms of medium of exchange, uh, uh, unit of account, and store value. Uh, okay, the 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 key uh, uh, thing in your your statement there is months ago. So like, <laughs> I was not prepared for this question. Months ago is a long time. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, but the question is just I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, the uh, uh, the question was just uh, you know um, is what I think I did what I just said, which was that uh, you know what 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 makes money money, um, and and what makes money money is the ability ability to uh, uh, use it as a currency of, uh, of as a medium of exchange the, the unit of account is is not particularly important um, but if you can you know if that's if that's the medium of exchange which it is with lightning um, irrespective of you know what the unit of account is of the thing that you're buying you know, if you go to McDonald's in El Salvador the prices are still in dollars but you're paying in Bitcoin so Bitcoin is therefore uh, a, a real uh, is, is Bitcoin is genuinely money. Right. So your, your argument was that uh, the dollar is a medium of exchange and a unit of account, but not a store of value. That Bitcoin is a store of value and a medium of exchange, but not a unit of account. I would just push back on that a little bit, Byron, which I'm just ask you a question, which is, I think when people, you know, monetary theorists came up with the thing store of value, they meant that a $1 now, you know, in five years would still be worth a dollar, maybe a little bit of inflation. Like, I don't think anyone used the term store of value to mean you'll buy, a, you know, it's $1 now, and then in five years, it will be worth 2,000 times. Like, I think Bitcoin is, a, you know, shown a remarkable ability to appreciate in terms of dollar terms, fiat terms. So is it really a store of value? I feel like a store of value would be something like a stable coin. Uh, Bitcoin is, has the potential to go up a huge amount, but you have to stomach a lot of volatility. And I think that is inherently not friendly to being used as a currency. You know, mentioned that Bitcoin was a mega savings vehicle, but it sounds like with the Stripe mechanism, we're not, Stripe mechanism, excuse me, we're, we're not talking about a savings vehicle, we're talking about a checking account. You know, there's a savings account and a checking account. So I'm curious what you think about, you know, Bitcoin's incredible, incredible ability to go up is actually a liability uh, for a currency because, like, if you if you if I'm bullish on Bitcoin, why would I buy things in Bitcoin? You know, I, just one thing to clarify as well about Strike. What's interesting about Strike is that you know Bitcoin. There's Bitcoin the asset, and then there's Bitcoin the payment network, right? So there's the capital and the lowercase b Bitcoin. So what's interesting about Strike and why it's an interesting integration for Shopify is that it allows the vendors on the Shopify platform to essentially leverage the payment infrastructure that underlines Bitcoin without actually getting involved in Bitcoin, the currency, right? The lowercase Bitcoin. Um, so it, it's, it's a weird kind of esoteric thing to, to, to try to separate out. But, uh, you know, part, part of what's interesting about the Lightning Network and this whole integration is it allows you to bypass a lot of the, uh, you know, like the credit card companies and a lot of the fees that are associated with that. Um, and even if you start to look like deeply into money and how money really works in the U.S., I mean, I, I agree that central banks printing reserves, that is money, but at the same time, the very real money in the economy, like the M2, right, that comes from central banks. And a lot of that comes from, you know, like uh, credit card companies as well. So it's credit creation, right? Um, a lot, of, we, we kind of confuse credit and money in general. Um, so I, I think to your question, Jack, yeah, I, I understand that the intense upwards volatility um, prevents it from being used as a currency. But let's remember that Bitcoin isn't a mature currency, right? I'm borrowing this from John Pfeffer, but Bitcoin is a venture investment in a new currency, I think. I don't think that anyone thinks over the long term 
that anything that go, has a, a 100x upside from here is going to be used as a currency that feels more like an investment. But the end stage of it is is what a currency looks like. I don't know, Byron, if you think about it any differently. Uh, I would just say that, uh, you know, store of value is uh, an aspect of money, but it's not a prerequisite to be money. The dollar has never been a store of value and was not designed that way. You know, the value is the dollar has been a medium of exchange and a unit of account. But, you know, if you if you buried your dollars in a tin can in the backyard, you have lost, you know, 90% of your purchasing power over time. Um so Bitcoin doesn't have to be a store of value to be money, for one thing, um, but it is, you know, uh, you know, the stores of value are, you know, equities and real estate and bonds and all those things are volatile. Uh, but over the longer term, you have a, a better chance of buying the same amount of stuff in the future that you can buy with them now. Um, and that, that goes for, for Bitcoin as well. It's just it's just a you know, more volatile store of value. This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it, and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. In plain English, Blockdaemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto-native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance, it could mean gathering real-time and accurate data, it could mean generating yield through staking, Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Got to click the link at the bottom. Otherwise, I won't get my credit. Speaking of the creation of reserve currencies, I want to get into, uh, and this is maybe a little bit more in the weeds crypto, but I want to talk about uh, Terra, uh, Luna, and the interesting $100 million purchase of Avalanche uh, that they made this week. Uh, so again, for listeners, if you're not super familiar with what UST is and, and Luna is, um, you know it's a decentralized algorithmic stablecoin uh, that's being built within crypto. Um, and just to set the stage, like again, hypothetically, if you were trying to create a currency that functions as a medium of exchange, like Byron was just describing, you need two things, right? You need demand, that is the demand side of things, which is actually you want people to want to use uh, that currency, right? So maybe in the U.S. example, like the demand side of the U.S. dollar is um, is our economy and getting access to investing in companies and homes and things like that, which you have to use U.S. dollars to buy. And then there's the uh, reserve or collateral side of it, which we used to have in the form of uh, gold in the Bretton Woods system, and now we don't really have anymore. So, but the demand side is still really strong. I guess the petrodollar. Um, that is basically uh, trying to be built right now in crypto with the. Uh, Terra Luna. Uh, so UST uh, is kind of the product, and that's the decentralized stablecoin that's acting as a medium of exchange. And then you had Luna, uh, which was the collateral system for that. Um, a nonprofit's been formed uh, called Luna Foundation Guard. They've been buying up Bitcoin, essentially, to collateralize the the uh, UST and give people more faith. You know, There's the demand side of people wanting to use UST, but now it's actually backed by Bitcoin. People feel very good about that as a pristine form of collateral. 
there's been speculation for a long time that they were going to diversify their reserves outside of just Bitcoin, right? So I think they bought like over $2 billion worth of Bitcoin today. They have plans to buy $10 billion in some vague time frame over the course of the next year. But they announced a $100 million purchase of Avalanche or AVAX uh, this week, which I think came as I, it was, I was surprised to see it. But then after I dug into it, I think it started to make a lot more sense to me uh, as to why. I have thoughts um, on on why in general, but Byron, I'd be curious to get your take on this. Just the sustainability, I suppose, of, of Luna in general, which seems to be something of a debate in crypto, and then also the decision to move into AVAX as opposed to something like purchasing ETH. Uh, I mean, it's looking more and more sustainable. It's definitely got uh, an aspect of, of lindiness to it. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I mean, there's just a lot of takeaways. It's really pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, possibly the, the most interesting thing that's that's going on in in crypto. Uh, I mean, one takeaway is just that uh, it shows the power of having the ability to print your own money. You know, uh, Doquan and LFG are, are printing money and people are accepting it. Um, they're accepting it partly just because of the, you know, Doquan sort of creates demand for his currency just by force of personality, um, for one thing, um, but also because of all these uh, different use cases that are being developed in, in the, the Terra ecosystem um, and elsewhere. Um, the AVAX thing in particular, I think, is super interesting um, because now AVAX, the token, is becoming a a, uh, a mint burn mechanism for UST, so it's not only Luna that is that is backing um, UST now on the Avalanche chain. It's Avax backing it, um, which really just it just uh, I haven't totally processed what the um, what the what the implications of that is, um, but it just it just shows that Doquan has just very big ambitions. Yeah. Um, which I think is is fascinating. I didn't realize I was assuming this, but I was assuming that the next asset that they were they would expand into buying is ETH, because that's a very large community. Um, but you know, AVAX. Again, I, I think if you are purely looking at this from the standpoint of collateralizing UST, right? So that kind of we talked about the demand versus the the collateral side. I think ETH would have been the choice. But again, maybe this just shows a little bit about their preference um, in terms of what they find more important, the collateralizing with, with reserve assets or actually going out and aggregating demand for UST. And I think they see Avalanche and particularly like some of the subnets that are being built on, on Avalanche, like there's a collaboration on a gaming subnet in particular that seems really interesting. Um, I think what they're doing here is saying demand is actually more important and what we'd actually like to, we see more potential demand for UST uh, you know, on the Avalanche chain than than maybe ETH. And I think there is an aspect of community to this. Like when when Terra announced that they were going to buy Bitcoin, what do people who like Bitcoin, what do they really love is when other people buy Bitcoin. And I think and I think there and I think there's an aspect of that with Avalanche as well, frankly, um, where maybe purchasing Avalanche, AVAX and aligning with that community, you'll get a more rabid support base underneath you than if you were to buy ETH at this point. Um, there's also the there's also the aspect of like ETH and Maker, you know, like those being kind of separate communities, but ultimately overlapping versus AVAC. Uh, you know, Luna is just like a cleaner way of doing that. So I, I I think it's it's I just think it's really interesting. And and where my mind goes immediately after this is like, okay, where are they going to expand next? Uh, because 
maybe I was I, I was wrong at thinking that they would move into ETH the first time. So maybe that what they're looking at next is Solana. Um, and I would say too, if you want to put your little conspiracy hat on, that uh, you know who is one of the biggest backers of the Solana ecosystem, jump, and who's one of the biggest backers of Terraform Labs, jump. So. I'm not saying, you know, but I I would just, I think there's a strong case that you could certainly make that uh, they might move into Solana next. I think think Solana Solana has a native stablecoin there, right? I think AVAX did not have a native stablecoin and Solana does have one. Mm. Um, So I think that was, that was the attraction of AVAX, not, yeah, not AVAX as collateral. If he was just going for collateral, he would have just bought more Bitcoin or bought more, you know, started buying Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was. He's he's bought AVAX because um, he's got a chance of making UST the default stablecoin on Avalanche. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean the UST story is is, is probably. I agree. I think it's probably the most interesting thing going on in crypto right now. Um, and if you look, like the one chart, like the most consistent chart in crypto uh, is not Bitcoin or Ethereum or NFTs or anything like that. It is the market cap of stablecoins. <laughs> Like it is a straight line up, uh, and it's still going basically. So issuance of new stable coins and UST is taking a larger and larger share of that pie. I would say as well. Yeah, sta- stable cool. coins are weirdly interesting. It seems like they'd be the least interesting part of crypto, but they actually are the most interesting. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I the question is, what do you think about the regulatory implications of uh, a, a stable coin that is entirely backed by U.S. dollars, like something like USDC versus uh, like a UST, which is in some ways actually kind of is, is very decentralized. I mean, I think the the interesting or one of the many interesting things about the the four pool news from last week is that uh, you know the algo stable coins are really um, coming into their own, and now they're going to have a seat at the table with the collateralized uh, stable coins. Um, so you know, Frax and UST are potentially going to be as big as USDC and 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 Tether. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what regulators do with that. I don't think they'll be very happy about it. Um, mm. I mean, I think you know, regulators are going to want you know full collateralization with audits and everything, um, and that is not what you get with with algo stable coins. Um, yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure what the the regulatory aspects are, but it is you know Janet Yellen uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, uh, you know, highlighted stable coins and and potential risks there, and I do think that there are you know systemic risks to crypto um, from stable coins, and they are you know the algo stable coins present a larger systemic risk, um, uh, so I you know. I think that to the degree that the algo stable coins take market share from collateralized ones and to the degree that they all get interconnected and start collateralizing each other, um, that uh, the, the systemic risks in, in crypto are, are rising. What about the argument? Um, so just in terms of systemic risk, so regulators have talked a lot about viewing stable coins as something that looks like money market funds. Right. And that's like kind of like you could look at something like USDC. Right. I mean, people put funds in, you get issued out this this one this dollar uh, kind of wrapped token type thing. And then the actual dollars that could put in get put into like corporate debt and stuff like that. And there's a return or not on that. And that's the monetization scheme basically for USDC in general. So, you know, there, there's an idea that actually maybe regulators are even more worried about something like that, because like, let's just say there's a world where USDC uh, you know, has a $1 trillion market cap, right? 
I think what people are worried, what what regulators tend to worry about, uh, and one of the big lessons from the great financial crisis was, you know, the stability of money market funds um, and short-term uh, funding markets in general. And that's what the money markets sit right at the heart of that. So what people are worried about is like a run on money market funds, where if people are trying to get out, quote unquote, of crypto, um, you know, they could essentially cash in their USDC and then uh, you know, Circle or Center or whatever the, the organization is would have to sell off that corporate debt that they have um, or whatever their assets are. And that would be a that could be systemically risky, um, as opposed to regulators might just look at a decentralized stable coin and be like, that's all in this cryptoverse anyway. That doesn't really matter. That's not going to impact the real world. You know, who do they really care if Avalanche sells off, you know, because Luna has to you know dump their AVAX? Like, I don't think so. Uh, but they certainly would care if USDC has to dump $500 billion worth of corporate debt. That would be very concerning to them. So maybe uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it like that. But yeah, yeah, an algo stable coin, I guess, has no transmission mechanism from uh, uh, crypto into real world assets to, to cause any trouble. I guess the, the regulatory concern then would just be investor protections, right? Um, like if, you know, investors are uh, all using stable coins to for their as savings accounts because there's higher yields than in their their actual savings accounts, um, and then you know you can have obviously you can have bank runs in in algo stable coins. Um, so yeah, maybe the uh, the investor protection angle would be the regulatory concern rather than uh, real world contagion. The other thing I want to get Byron, I know we're running low on time here, but you you described the four pool. Can you just describe what that is? Why like that's an important, just what the four pool is and why it's important in general? Uh, well, it's not anything yet, I don't think. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a proposal at the moment. Um, but the, uh, the idea is to uh, replace the three pool with the four pool. The three pool is the uh, pool of stable coins on Curve, which is the um, automated market maker for, for stable coins um, that provides a lot of the liquidity for all of, of DeFi. Um, and at the moment, this, the three pool is USDC, uh, Tether, and Dai. Um, so no, no algo stable coins in there. Um, Doquan has a personal beef with Dai. I think just because Dai insulted Luna on Terra at some point. I'm not, not sure exactly why. Um, and Dai has been a little bit of a, a freeloader in the whole uh, Curve Wars thing because they have not really been growing, but they're in there in the the primary uh, uh, liquidity pool. So this proposal for the four pool is to uh, make a new primary. Uh, liquidity pool of USDC, Tether, Frax, and UST. So um, dropping die, uh, and they're going to incentivize that that pool with um, all of the uh, convex that is owned by Frax and Terra, and that will that will probably be able to make four pool the default liquidity provide uh, source of liquidity for DeFi over the three pool, um, which. You know the curve pool. The, the curve wars get very complicated. They do. Um, but I think the, the 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 basic takeaway is that um, the the primary pool of liquidity will switch from being the uh, original stable coins of USDC, Tether, and Dai to being uh, UST, uh, USDC, Tether, and the two rising algo stable coins, which is uh, uh, Frax and UST. Mm-hmm. Well, there's obviously a big uh, 
a big bet. I mean, stable coins, interestingly, I, you know, to your point, they should, they almost seem like something that's dull, but they're actually kind of emerging as the, the killer use case uh, of crypto. And they're not, uh, the, you know, use is not diminishing, right? You know, bull versus bear markets or whatever. Again, you know, issuance of new stable coins is kind of a steady, a steady rise. And, uh, you know, I've actually, you know, so Blockworks, right, for permissionless. Um, you know, we've sold to many more crypto native companies, right? DAOs are involved primarily as sponsors for the conference in general. Uh, DAOs like to pay in native tokens and USDC, et cetera. So we've gotten an enormous amount of payment uh, recently in USDC. And for the first time, you know, Jason and I are kind of talking about, do we move this back into the fiat banking system or do we keep this in crypto where you can earn pretty risk-free, meaningful interest? Uh, so you can actually, you know, now that it's not a theoretical thing, I see very real firsthand why a lot of this money is quite sticky uh, when it enters into the crypto ecosystem. Not to mention, you can just move it around much more easily and transfer it. And again, it's this kind of a, for companies in crypto that have adopted this, it's like annoying to get a, a bank wire, right? Because you have to go like do all these things. It's just much more cumbersome. Uh, so I kind of, yeah, I, I understand why that's been a steady, a steady rise up. You actually have a lot more utility for your money um, in at least some, some senses, right? Uh, keeping it in. I guess one also to just to tie it together with the previous discussion on on Luna um, is that you know Doquan and LFG uh, they want to buy a lot of Bitcoin obviously and also AVAX and other things and to do that they have to sell UST um, so the four pool is going to create a giant new source of liquidity that they can sell into um, so it's it's all part of the it's all part of Doe's master plan. Um, and he's, it's just, I think it's just really amazing the way that he can, uh, that he can, um, you know, uh, create demand for, uh, the, uh, the, the UST that he, he wants to sell to, in order to, to buy as much Bitcoin as he wants to buy. Yeah, I agree. All right, guys, we're running low on time here. I guess, uh, just any closing thoughts or anything that you're paying attention to that you think is getting underreported or stuff you're digging into, find interesting. Jack, I know we got really into the weeds there uh, with, with some of the stablecoin talk, which is a little bit more outside of your, your direct focus. But uh, what else are you kind of thinking about heading into the week that people should be aware of? Well, next week is the inflation print. The expect median expectation now is 8.3%. We've had huge uh, surge in the increase of gasoline, oil, and, and key commodities. So I, I think it could be a pretty hot number. And it'll be interesting to see how the bond market relax, uh, reacts to that. A, a, a few quick plugs. Uh, I interviewed Roger Lowenstein, author um, of When Genius Failed. And he has a new book uh, about Lincoln and the financing of the Civil War. Very interesting. It's really is, you know witnessed the birth of the dollar. So that airs on, what is that, Sunday, April 10th. And then on Tuesday, as, as always, I'm talking to Joseph Wang uh, with George Goncalves, who's an interest rate uh, strategist at MUFG. Also, just thematically, I, I actually had you know a lot of time to, to listen to you guys just talk about stable coins and I'm kind of you know I have I have Zoltan uh, on my on my brain but one of the key, the key aspects of money is par in other words uh, a bank deposit at JP Morgan is worth the exact same as a bank deposit uh, you know one dollar at Bank of America which is worth the exact same as one dollar a dollar bill in your pocket and I think stable coins have the exact same thing you know you oh, I'll give you USDC you'll give me USDT I'll give you UST you'll give me a dollar my bank you know it's it's all relies on this par and the tradfi world you know going all the way back to you know like 5000 BC is replete of examples of uh, there being a system of par that ultimately breaks. And I think the last time par broke was in uh, 2008. 
Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't think crypto has had a huge, you know, macro liquidation. Like by macro, I mean, you know, systemically, you know, you've had drawdowns, but I don't think there's been that uh, thing. And uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, how that system evolves. Uh, yeah, just on, on that, it's just, you know, the, the four pool and uh, um, everything that's happening around that and the curve wars, I think that's, that's um, you know, those those risks of a major DPEG that would look like a TradFi um, uh, bank run are, are rising, although I think that's still pretty far in the future. Um, and then one thing to, to look at, uh, maybe to kind of bridge crypto and, and macro, uh, is Frax is dropping a new coin FPI, which is going mm. to be a stablecoin linked to CPI. Um, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't think they've uh, um, released the the tokenomics and stuff yet, um, but I think it's going to be super interesting to 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 look at and and see how it goes. I think you know uh, you know as long as CPI is printing eight percent, um, being able to to buy a stablecoin uh, linked to that. Uh, would be uh, would would be of a lot of interest, I think. Oh, sorry, just uh, just last thing. This is uh, I think it's really exciting because a lot of crypto, you know, we think of crypto as as real assets, but I think in the nominal world versus the real world, real worlds are things you can touch. Crypto, you know, like the traditional finance system, is in the nominal world. But I think uh, crypto, if crypto could sort of hop and leap over the the fiat world and have things that are backed by oil, you know, backed by by gold, backed by uh, interest rates, or backed by inflation, like Byron just said, uh, I think that's something that is very exciting and definitely has a, a huge use case. I agree. Yeah, it's. I mean, the the irony in in some ways of what Doe and and Terra are trying to do is they're reconstructing something that looks much more like a Bretton Woods type system with actual reserves uh, than our current system today. Uh, like I know Jack. I mean, one one of the interesting things I'd uh, just in terms of a commodity based. Uh, you know, reserve currency. It's kind of, that that becomes pretty tricky, honestly. When you don't have a commodity that feels very fungible, right? Like I get the like gold as a as a backing commodity. I get oil as a backing commodity. But you know, it's starting to talk about things like wheat. Wheat is not like a fungible asset around around the world, right? Um, and like Byron, I know we were talking about. There's a big difference even between like wheat reserves in China versus the U.S. because the U.S. is a much greater capability of producing wheat, but. Um, all these are interesting unanswered questions. Uh, we've also, guys, we also just did the permies reveal. Um, I got to go see what my permie looks like. <laughs> so this has been yeah, uh, a ton too. of fun. Uh, by the way, folks listening, if you hadn't gotten your permie yet, uh, they've all been minted, but you can go to OpenSea uh, or whatever and, and uh, potentially buy one. Uh, but they're great. You get all this. Uh, it's a lifetime pass for permissionless. But Mike, who are they going to buy it from? I'm, I'm not, not selling mine either. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can find someone, but uh, they're good. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime pass for permissionless VIP for this year's event. A ton of great stuff associated with it. Um, fellas, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, Mark, again, we miss you. I'll see you next week. And uh, cheers, guys. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us, Mike.